Since the 1960s and 70s, the gay rights movement has made significant strides in the West. What was unimaginable then is now a bit more widely accepted thanks to shifting attitudes and viewpoints. In the eyes of the law in several countries, gay men can enjoy the same legal rights as heterosexual couples, including the benefits of marriage, adoption, and even having children of their own through surrogacy. It goes without saying that homosexuality has come a long way from its days as an underground subculture of sorts when it was forced to remain hidden from view. Still, it might surprise you to learn that such practices and behavior weren't necessarily banned or outlawed outright by many countries, though encounters between two men were often classified simply as lewd acts. There was, however, one country who did ban homosexuality outright, and it wasn't until about a half century ago that the decision was reversed. What led to the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967? Why was homosexual activity banned in Britain in the first place? And what exactly did this landmark decision reverse? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. For much of Britain's history after the withdrawal of the Romans in AD 410, homosexual activities between men were outlawed. The medieval period ushered in an age of superstition in which the church oversaw nearly all aspects of everyday life and, at least to the impartial observer, maintained morality and spiritual order. Sex in those days was promoted by the clergy as something that two people, specifically a man and a woman, could engage in only within the confines of marriage. Anything outside of that was seen as blasphemous. Men who were caught engaging in homosexual activities could be hanged, stoned, drowned, or even burned alive. While the Renaissance and later Enlightenment saw a natural moving away from the church and religious doctrine, things didn't improve for gay men, though such behavior was only slightly more accepted in the artistic and creative circles of the time. Perhaps the most famous case of homosexual criminality in British history was the trial of Oscar Wilde, which scandalized the rigid and conservative Victorian society which served as its backdrop. Sentenced to two years of hard labor at the notorious Reading Jail, he spent the last few years of his life in exile in Paris, where he ultimately died, nearly alone and almost completely friendless. Of course now, he's celebrated as one of that country's greatest writers, and beloved the world over for his scathing wit and gorgeous prose. But in the years after his sentencing and passing, he served as the prime example in British society of the supposed dangers, quote-unquote, of what Wilde himself famously referred to as the love that dare not speak its name. Through much of the 20th century's formative decades, gay men lived in plain sight in British society, though they weren't allowed to express themselves the way their heterosexual counterparts could. This led to thriving subcultures in cities like London and Manchester, and even the birth of a unique form of heavily coded speech known as polari. Comprised of Italian loanwords, terms from the Romani language, sailors and thieves slang, and even borrowed Yiddish words, it allowed male homosexuals to meet with one another in public without being found out. One of the best accounts of Polari in popular culture was made by none other than the Anglo-Irish New Wave singer Morrissey, who sang about it in his song Piccadilly Polari. By the 1950s, the situation for Britain's gay male population had become quite precarious. A number of high-profile cases were made at this time, with actors, writers, artists, musicians, and others all being charged with indecency and sexual deviancy. Quote unquote, and being sentenced to time in prison. But despite the strict traditional and conservative atmosphere of post-war Britain, a committee was set up by the government to possibly take steps to decriminalize homosexuality. Led by John Wolfenden, an educator and educationalist, who incidentally also had a gay son, who'd later go on to serve as director of the British Museum as well as within the House of Lords, the resulting publication, published in 1957 and known simply as the Wolfenden Report, suggested the overturning of such laws for gay men over the age of 21. The committee summarized the report as follows, quote, Unless a deliberate attempt be made by society through the agency of the law to equate the sphere of crime with that of sin, there must remain a realm of private that is, in brief, not the law's business, unquote. 
For a moment, it looked as if things might turn around at last for Britain's gay male population. But alas, Harold Macmillan, the Prime Minister at the time, refused to draft it due to fears of public outcry. The report was brought up again in 1960, and once more in 1965, the latter in the form of a new bill proposed by then-Labour MP, Leo Abzi, that would decriminalize private and consensual gay sex between men over the age of 21. Alas, both proposals were voted down by the House of Commons. But change was definitely in the air. By the end of the decade, the Wolfenden Report was once again brought back onto the proverbial table for discussion. On October 28, 1965, the House of Lords passed a bill that would implement many of the concepts featured within the initial report. Drafted by Conservative peer Arthur Gore, the 8th Earl of Arran, or simply Lord Arran, it was supported, in a surprising turn of events, by none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, a post held by Michael Ramsay at the time, as well as many other high-ranking members of the Church of England. From there was introduced into the House of Commons by Conservative MP Humphrey Berkeley, where it also passed on February 11, 1966. But with the dissolution of Parliament during the general election that year, the bill came to a grinding halt, largely due to Berkeley having lost his seat as a result. Still, it had set in motion a chain of events that would lay down the foundations for decriminalizing homosexuality in Britain. A couple months later, on April 26, 1966, Lord Aaron introduced what he called the Sexual Offenses Bill to the House of Lords. It was passed on June 16 that same year, and was immediately followed by another, this one proposed by Labour MP Leo Abzi and the House of Commons. With only some slight alterations to Lord Aaron's initial bill, the government decided to allot more time to it, as it was clear that the majority were in favour of it. Following the Labour Party's victory in the general election, the Sexual Offenses Bill would be one of many that would be proposed and implemented over the course of the ensuing four years. Other reforms included the legalization of abortion, the relaxing of divorce laws, and the abolition of capital punishment, to name a few. Over a year later, on July 4, 1967, the bill passed in the House of Commons by a staggering 99-14 to 14 vote, a majority of 85, and in the House of Lords nine days later on July 13, by a vote of 111-48, to 48, a majority of 63. Two weeks after that, on July 27th, the bill received royal assent, that is, the approval of Queen Elizabeth II, the reigning monarch at the time, thus officially becoming the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967. With the passing of this act, two consenting adult males over the age of 21 could legally engage in sexual activity without fear of being prosecuted. This was a whole five years over the legal age limit for heterosexual activity, 16, and only applied to England and Wales. Scotland and Northern Ireland were exempt, as were the military branches of the armed forces and the merchant navy. Buggery, that is, sodomy, and gross indecency were still considered criminal offenses, but for the first time, maximum penalties were differentiated depending on whether the act in question was still illegal as stated in the bill. This was characterized by lack of consent, a sexual act was carried out in public, or the minimum age requirement wasn't met. Though the adoption of this bill was seen as a significant stride, from the government's point of view anyway, for Britain's gay male population, it did nothing to actually condone homosexual behavior. After all, it merely argued that it was not the law's responsibility to prosecute gay men for their private goings-on. Such sentiment was perhaps best reflected in an article in the London Times following the July 4, 1967 parliamentary debate. Quote, Those who suffer from this disability carry a great weight of shame all their lives. Unquote. Not exactly words of tolerance or acceptance. Even Lord Aaron, the man who proposed the initial bill, had this to say. Quote, I ask those homosexuals to show their thanks by comporting themselves quietly and with dignity. Any form of ostentatious behavior now or in the future or any form of public flaunting would be utterly distasteful, and make the sponsors of this bill regret that they had done what they had done. Unquote. Not exactly a sweet victory or warm reception. Indeed, while the decriminalization of these activities was a huge step forward, still more needed to be done. 
It would be another ten years before the idea of further decriminalization practices would be brought back up for discussion. The first of these took place in 1979, and was intended to amend the age of consent for homosexual activity to 18, something closer to the 16 years of age required for heterosexual encounters. This, however, was denied for fear of, quote, young men exploring such activities and therefore be ostracized by society, unquote. A significant stride in 1994 lowered the age to 18, but it wouldn't be for another six years, in 2000, that it would be lowered again to 16. At last, gay men had achieved equality in the eyes of the law along with their heterosexual counterparts after more than 30, nay hundreds of years of struggle. It's important to note that these referendums were largely confined to England and Wales. Scotland and Northern Ireland wouldn't join the proverbial decriminalization bandwagon until 1981 and 1982 respectively. In short, the process towards legalizing quote-unquote homosexuality was slow and steady throughout Britain. Nowadays, with both government and societal acceptance, it's hard to imagine that there was ever a time when such behavior, practices, and expressions were ever suppressed. Still, as with every chapter of history, it's intriguing to look back and see how far things have come. Thankfully, gay men in Britain no longer need live in fear of being their true, authentic selves. Thanks for listening. It goes without saying that the gay rights movements in the West have made significant strides in obtaining equality. But there are, however, parts of the world where such expressions are still under attack, be it by the government proper or people upholding quote-unquote morals and morality. For those people in societies, I sincerely pray that their time of liberation will come, for everyone should have the chance to live freely and without fear of persecution. I hope you all have a terrific weekend ahead, and be sure to drop in next week for an epic tale from the days of the Mexican-American War, only here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.